second to none, and we own the finish line. Don't forget it. I want to play that full clip for you, not just the ending that you saw there, but first I want to jump in to give you the context. That's from Biden's speech at the Democratic Convention in 2016. It's been repeatedly going viral for months now. Just an incredible moment, one of the greatest speeches Biden ever delivered. Here it is, then we'll discuss. Not only do we have the largest economy in the world, we have the strongest economy in the world. We have the most productive workers in the world. And given a fair shot, given a fair chance, Americans have never, ever, ever, ever let their country down. Never, never. Ordinary people like us who do extraordinary things. We've had candidates before who attempted to get elected by appealing to our fears, but they've never succeeded because we do not scare easily. We never bow. We never bend. We never break when confronted with crisis. No, we endure. We overcome. And we always, always, always move forward. That's why, that's why I can say with absolute conviction, I am more optimistic about our chances today than when I was elected as a 29-year-old kid to the Senate. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because, because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. And God willing, God willing, Hillary Clinton will write the next chapter in that journey. We are America, second to none, and we own the finish line. Don't forget it. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Come on. We're America. Pretty dang legendary. So I saw that, thought it was cool, wanted to play it for you. That's reason one, main reason why we're talking about it on today's show. But I also want to discuss a little bit about one of the elements of that speech. Really the main subject of what you just watched was a sort of hype up for the United States. And it gets to what I guess you'd call progressive patriotism. And something that I think rhetorically, we as people on the left could learn a lot from. What do I mean by that? Well. For a long time, the Republican Party has spent a lot of time, effort, and resources on different branding initiatives. We're the pro-freedom party, pro-liberty party, pro-veteran party, the party of fiscal responsibility, etc. Things that fit on a bumper sticker nicely are simple, easy to remember, and they pound that branding drum for years and people across the country start believing it. Now, of course, so often, the branding is antithetical to their policies. For example, Republicans are pro-veteran, they say, even though Democrats always want to more properly fund programs that take care of veterans, or Republicans are fiscally responsible and good for the economy, even though the economy has consistently performed better under Democrats while overseeing smaller increases to the deficit for decades. And there are all sorts of similar examples. We heard Patrick Matt David say in a past segment that the right wing is for choice and freedom. Hmm, I have a few dozen million women who would beg to differ. But the Democratic Party falls into this really aggravating routine of ceding those talking points to Republicans. They're so rarely 
proper pushback. So then even a lot of left-leaning moderates are walking around thinking Republicans are better for the economy, as the polling shows people think that, even though that hasn't appeared in the data for at least a century. But it's because Republicans win the branding game. As I've said a lot in light of recent news, facts don't speak for themselves. We have to speak on behalf of facts and then smack people across the face metaphorically with facts as many times as it takes until they absorb them. And that applies to this idea of loving America as well. For so long, as you know, Republicans have screamed from the rooftops that those on the left hate America and Republicans are the ones who love America. But often that came in the form of framing change and improvements as proof of hate for the country. And the only way to exhibit one's love for the country is by advocating it's perfect as it is and should stay the same or better yet, they'd say, go backwards to a time gone by, make America great again like it was in the past. Then you ask when and the answer is the 50s maybe. Y'all remember how great the 50s were for everybody? Now, of course, this has changed some with Trump who says everything's terrible and the only way we can fix it is by selecting a strong man like him. But the criticism levied at the left is essentially the same. And one of the reasons this branding has worked so effectively for so long is the left doesn't really push back aggressively enough against it. And that's why it's something I bring up on occasion. Loving one's country, it's not about excusing its wrongdoing or ignoring its history. Loving one's country is not about worshiping symbols or wishing for times that have passed, loving one's country is acknowledging the severe injustices and working to address them. It's celebrating where we get it right and correcting where we get it wrong. And in this country in particular, it's acknowledging the responsibility that comes with being the most powerful and influential country on the entire planet, acknowledging the magnitude of the United States. And that shouldn't lead us to be brazen or ignorant in our interactions with the rest of the world, but instead motivate us to leverage that might for good. So the fact that we want to see change enacted and people uplifted is proof of our love for America. In addition to our love for the best of American ideals that we constantly fail to live up to. And Biden in that speech tapped into some of that. Democrats do better embody the principles of freedom, liberty, and love of country. Not because we put it on bumper stickers and yard signs, but because we want to do the work to uphold those principles and make them a reality for so many of the people that they're not. So I guess my request to you in this segment is don't seed the framing. Don't allow for the GOP to get away with the branding that just doesn't reflect reality on this issue or others. If we believe, as I do, that there's something unique and powerful about the founding and existence of the United States, then we should express that by trying to actually manifest the best of what it could be. We begin our next segment with this. This is obviously huge for Republicans and really for anyone who is concerned about border security. But when you look at catch and release, you have to look at what's causing it. And it's a judicial backlog right, of people who are coming and they are applying for, excuse me, I let you speak, who are coming and, protect, or coming and looking for protection. Yeah. There's not enough room for everyone, so you have them being released. But the law that you said you don't need, the Senate deal, had it passed and, and become law, 
would have prevented that. It would have actually, no, actually upped that have. credible. It would have yeah, upped that no, credible fear threshold. It would have upped that credible. No, it actually fear. wouldn't have. Yeah. It, it was. A, it would have it would, allowed five thousand people in would, our country. A no, that's day, not true. The, and that's which not is true. Five and the border patrol as much council as it was coming through. Over may I please speak, or I'm going to have to cut this? If you won't let me speak, I'm going to cut the interview off, and I will let you speak and finish sentences. I would okay, be, and please, wait, please give me that much. respect as well. Thank you very much. So what I will say is the Border Patrol Council dis disagrees with you. They've been very frustrated with what you are representing as 5,000 people. That is actually a trigger, right? Which is actually, we're above it right now on the border. So yeah. it's not as you represent it. That was seen in host Brianna Keeler absolutely tearing apart the nonsense of MAGA representative Beth Van Dyne. I have more to show you, but finally, finally a good confrontation. Love to see it. Two things have to happen to create moments like that one. The first is that MAGA Republicans have to be willing to go on networks other than the right-wing ones that will only conduct softball interviews. And the uh, second is that when they do go on those more mainstream, reasonable networks, the hosts have to be prepared to call out the nonsense. Um, and often that's not something they're willing to do either. We'll also get to, by the way, in this segment, Fox News host Steve Ducey exposing the dishonesty of an argument being made by MAGA Republicans on a different subject. But first, this, uh, lots of credit there to Brianna Keeler. So many of the narratives that MAGA's entire ideology is built on are just so painfully, factually incorrect. Keeler points out that this lie Republicans are pushing, that Biden is just casually not processing migrants and having them enter the United States is based on this profoundly dishonest presentation of the situation. Again, a lie. Right now, outside of Biden's control, there happens to be a big surge in migration at the southern border for a multitude of complex reasons. What's in his control, obviously, is how he responds. So in response, authorities and our immigration system more broadly are trying to manage the situation. And right now there just aren't enough resources or proper systems in place to manage that as effectively as we should. Thus Biden, Senate Democrats, and some Senate Republicans put together that border bill that sought to address this very subject. But Trump, as we covered extensively, wants to run on the border. So he wants the issues to be as bad as possible. So he directed MAGA to kill the deal, and they did. Now, by the way, just as a factual matter, it just so happens that you are more likely to be released as a migrant under the Trump administration than the Biden administration. We looked at the data on that in a past segment. I know it's crazy because it's supposed to be open border jail, right? Mm, not so much. And then this talking point about 5,000 people being allowed in with just no process is ridiculous. As Brianna Keeler pointed out, that's the trigger for when even processing or hearing asylum claims starts being restricted in the new deal that was proposed that didn't get through because of MACA. When that many people are encountered at the border, then there's this trigger. Um, but it's not what she was portraying it to be, the MAGA Republican Congresswoman. Then here's another moment from this interview. And we had a fantastic partnership with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where we actually worked with them to remove criminal illegal immigrants in our communities because we saw the amount of crime that it was being caused. We saw the people that they were preying upon was other people that were in our country illegally. As a result of that partnership, our crime rate dropped and we became the fifth safest city in the country. Those partnerships work, enforcing our laws work. 
What we have seen is the exact opposite under this administration, and you have seen well, people okay. dying. Let me let me let me stop and ask you uh, yeah. about this. A couple things. First off, illegal immigrants criminal conviction rate is 45% below that of native-born Americans in your state, just to be clear. When you raise the specter of they create so many uh, crimes, they're convicted. I mean, when it comes to violent crimes, property crimes, homicides, sex crimes, you've talked in the past about rapes, the numbers just don't support that. It is really interesting. Um, I've said many times before, of course, people should only come to the United States legally and we should have a secure border and we should make our ability to process legal immigrants more robust and all of that but just as a matter of fact undocumented immigrants commit the least crime when comparing them to legal immigrants and then citizens born in the united states which intuitively makes sense given that if you get caught for committing a crime um, and you're an undocumented immigrant then you can be deported so you'll be extra careful uh, but then moving on from that let me first read this reporting to you, and then we'll hear from Steve Ducey. The Daily Beast reports, the Senate passed a $95 billion foreign aid package for Israel and Ukraine before sunrise Tuesday, with the bill now heading to the GOP-controlled House, where Speaker Mike Johnson indicated the measure may never see the light of day. Now, there's, of course, a whole separate conversation and debate going on about aid to Israel that involves Democrats amid the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, something Biden's been speaking about recently and uh, many others, but Republicans are opposed to this primarily because of aid to Ukraine. That's their sticking point. And the reasoning from some of them as to why we can't send aid to Ukraine is because we should secure our own border before funding the protection of Ukraine. That's the argument they make. We can't send money to Ukraine to defend their borders if our border's not secure. Hmm. But you killed the border bill. <laughs> it makes... They killed the deal on the border and are now saying action on the border is necessary to support ukraine it's crazy here's Ducey calling this out speaker johnson speaker johnson said uh, he was slamming this package for excluding the border security provisions the senate bill he said is silent on the most pressing issue facing our country talking about the border he says he's not going to bring it to the floor if it passes the senate which it did but they could find a way to go around the speaker right and, and he says the reason that the house is not going to bring it up is because it needs uh, border security stuff which ironically was in the senate bill last week but of course that was kicked to the curb because a bunch of Republicans bailed on it because Donald Trump didn't like it. Um, according to Punchbowl this morning, House leadership believes that they cannot bring this particular Senate bill to the House floor if Johnson wants to remain Speaker. In other words, if they bring it up in the House, he will be gone. So yeah. Okay, so Ducey quickly and casually explained what is a deeply illogical argument from Mike Johnson. And I think we're going to be hearing this on a bunch of stuff in the future. From now on, anytime Republicans don't want to take something up in the House, they can just say, we refuse to engage with this because it doesn't address the situation at the southern border. But also, we're the ones who are preventing anything from being done on the border. <sighs> MAGA math, I guess you could say. My goodness. We begin our next segment with this. 
It's disgusting. I mean, every bit of it's disgusting. You know, to sit there and mock my husband for not being with me on the presidential trail because he is deployed and serving our country. You mock one veteran, you're mocking all veterans. But this is a pattern, Dana. He's done this over and over again. Whether he went and calls military members suckers, whether he was at Arlington Cemetery saying what was in it for them, why would they do this? The problem with Trump is he's never been anywhere near a uniform. He apparently had um, some sort of foot reason that he says he couldn't do that. But the reality is the closest he's come to harm's way is a golf ball hitting him on a, on a golf cart. I'll play more from that Nikki Haley appearance on Fox News in just a moment. But I want to quickly interject and break down some of the context. Yesterday, we discussed a speech that Donald Trump delivered in Conway, South Carolina. This was the speech where he said, if NATO countries aren't paying enough into NATO in his mind, then he'd encourage Russia to attack them. Obviously insane. Well, one of the moments we didn't look at because I want to dedicate a whole segment to it was the moment Nikki Haley was referencing there. Donald Trump mocked the fact that her husband is not campaigning with her. Now, of course, the reason for that is because he's in the South Carolina National Guard and it's currently deployed overseas. And he's mocking, again, the fact that he's not with her on the campaign trail. Where is she? Here's what Trump, or where is he, I should say. And here's what Trump said at Saturday's rally. Over to see me at Mar-a-Lago, sir, I will never run against you. She brought her husband. Where's her husband? Oh, he's away. He's away. Where, what happened to her husband? What happened to her husband? Where is he? He's gone. He knew. Then here's more from Nikki Haley. These men and women sacrifice for us every day. They're willing to shed blood. That's the values that made this country great. And anybody that excuses what he continues to say against the military is hugely mistaken because this is going to be the president of the United States. We have to start doing more to help our veterans. They don't get the due they deserve. They don't get taken care of. We've got to start watching out for them. You can't do that if you've got a commander in chief that disrespects them. Those are fighting words for the military. In South Carolina, we love our military. We fight hard for them. We want to make their lives better. We don't mock them. And what he did mm -hmm. is just disgusting. And anybody that agrees with it or says it's okay is disgusting along with them. Now, that's a noticeable escalation in rhetoric for Nikki Haley, calling him disgusting, finally. <laughs> and she's absolutely correct. The pro-military party is almost certainly going to nominate the guy who has utter disregard for the service of military members, has repeatedly disparaged and disrespected fallen soldiers, calling them suckers and losers, as she said, for sacrificing their lives for the country. And said, of course, John McCain wasn't a hero because Trump likes people who weren't captured. And actually, I wasn't planning on this, but let me quickly cut in that moment so you can be reminded of the absurdity of it. It's been a while, I'm sure, since you've seen this. I supported him, he lost, he let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. But, but Frank, he's Frank, let me get hero. to it. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a, a war he's hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. Five and a half years. He's a war PSW hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you he's agree with that? It's disgusting. And any person who supports that should answer for that type of disgusting rhetoric. But I do think it's important to note that Nikki Haley, until just recently was one of those people that she's now criticizing, excusing and supporting the behavior of Donald Trump all too often. After he made all those remarks, 
she was willing to stand by his side. And she was confronted about this during an interview on Face the Nation. I know you said this is disqualifying, but during his first presidential uh, campaign, Donald Trump mocked former POW John McCain and a Gold Star family. He was still elected. You agreed to work for him. Why do you think that's disqualifying now? Well, I agreed to serve our country, and I'm proud that I got to serve our country. Um, there's, there's nothing, um, no more higher honor than to serve um, the people of this country. But what I can tell you is, look, it's just, it's insulting to military members. It's insulting to military families. And the part that bothers me is he continues to do this. This isn't personal about me and Michael. This is about what it says to every member who sacrifices for us. This is about what it says to every military family who sacrifices alongside of them. We can't have someone who sits there and mocks our men and women who are trying to protect America. It's a pattern. It's a pattern of chaos. It's a pattern of irresponsibility. It's a pattern of just saying things that are that are not helpful in strengthening America. Yes. Yeah, so again, everything she's saying about Trump now, absolutely correct in regard to this subject. But I will say on her response, it's not just about, quote unquote, serving the country as you an ambassador. That's the issue. It's also about supporting Trump after knowing about his vile character and behavior. And as I've said so many times, this is just sort of the reality within the Republican Party. Almost every Republican, with just a few exceptions, who is out now saying something correct about Donald Trump, at one point was standing right by his side and supportive of everything. And so I think every time uh, this happens, the best we can do is acknowledge the accuracy of statements, of course, while also pointing out the record of these Republicans. And now Nikki Haley is being attacked personally, and she has a big reason to criticize Trump running against him for president. And so that doesn't make her uh, defense of her husband and herself any less legitimate, but it's important to be noted. Then I want to show you some of Haley's appearance on State of the Union with Jake Tapper, and this moves off that subject and gets to her responding to Trump saying he'd encourage Putin to attack NATO if they aren't paying their bills. Well, first of all, in the administration, he talked many times about getting out of NATO behind closed doors and publicly. So that's just a fact. But the idea that he would side with a thug, the idea that Trump is saying that not only is he not going to defend our allies who were with us after 9-11, by the way, but that he's also going to tell Putin to go ahead and encourage him to invade them is unthinkable. The idea that he is siding with a man who kills his opponents, the idea that he's siding with Putin, who's holding Evan Gersovich just for doing his job, the idea that he would side with a man who has made it very clear that he wants to defeat America. One, as personally, as the wife of a combat veteran, that's the last thing you want to hear from someone who wants to be commander-in-chief because that means he's not going to watch out for the men and women in the military. Secondly, that means he's not going to watch out for our friends. So here's my question to all of you on Nikki Haley. What's her plan, do you think? Because she's getting more and more truthful about Trump, which means she'll inevitably increasingly be despised by the Republican Party. Initially, people were saying, I'll remind you, Maybe she'll be selected as his running mate. That now seems obviously off the table, but it's a reminder of the shift in her rhetoric. For most of the campaign, she would barely touch Trump, barely criticize him, and would do the whole, I don't kick sideways thing. <laughs> Which if you miss that saga, right when she launched her campaign, 
the the focus grouped phrase that she was going with constantly was i don't kick sideways i kick forwards and she said it so many dang times well she started kicking sideways i guess and so previously her saying she wouldn't kick sideways left her a future in the republican party similar to vivek or desantis tim scott they can still reassimilate into the trump gop but nikki haley now is taking things to the next level where i don't think she'll be allowed in the trump gop after this presidential run because of the sensitivity of maga and trump to these sorts of criticisms so what's the plan then that's my question i don't have an answer for you that's not rhetorical <laughs> actually what's the plan maybe she feels like this is the end of the road for her uh politically this is the end of her political career anyways so she might as well go all in on this race since it appears to be nearing its conclusion but who knows well this story is a delight for me i want to bring in aaron parnas our legal analyst to break it down so give us the context of this story and then trump's lawyers being reprimanded in a beautiful fashion yeah, so to give you some background first, this is coming from the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial in New York, where Judge Ngoron, the judge presiding over the case, is expected to issue a decision uh, any day now, or really any week now. And after closing arguments had concluded in December, Judge Ngoron had been writing his decision. But in the past couple of weeks, a little wrinkle came up that has caused some trouble for Trump's attorneys. And that little wrinkle is a New York Times article that Alan Weisselberg, Trump's former CFO, allegedly is in talks with New York District Attorney to potentially plead guilty to perjury for lying on the witness stand during the civil fraud trial. Now, after that New York Times article came out, Judge Angoran emailed attorneys for both the Attorney General, but also for Trump and the Trump org, and essentially asked how that New York Times article, assuming it is right, impacts his ultimate decision. And he said that the attorneys need to respond because based on this New York Times article, um, he could just simply say anything that Weisselberg testified to on the witness stand uh, was false and was untrue because of the potential perjury plea. So that's the background. Um, after Trump's attorneys responded, specifically Alina Abba, who represents Weisselberg, and then Clifford Robert, who represents the Trump organization, both of them in their response essentially said, hey, judge, you are too political. This is just another one of your games. Uh, you should stop this. Uh, and Judge Rangoran has quickly fired back in a letter to them or in an email to them saying, how dare you essentially? Uh, it is not a political inquiry. It is a legitimate inquiry. Because if Weisselberg lied on the witness stand, then that ultimately does impact the decision Judge Ngoron makes. Uh, so that's where we're at right now. The judge is essentially firing back at both Abba and Clifford Robert, who's the attorney for the Trump organization. And I want to read some excerpts from the email you're referencing from the judge to Trump's lawyers. He, uh, Judge Ingram, writes, When I sent my straightforward narrow request for information about possible perjury by Alan Weisselberg in the subject case, I was not seeking to initiate a wide-ranging debate with counsel. However, your misleading response grossly mischaracterizes the letter that I wrote, and I feel compelled to respond. Arguing against judicial notice is attacking a straw person as I have not taken, do not plan to take, and did not suggest or hint that I would take judicial notice of the subject, New York Times article, or the contents thereof. It goes on to say he's not going to take this 
New York Times article as evidence. It'll be Weisselberg's uh, testimony or guilty plea. Then he, I'll skip forward to this moment, he writes, you and your co-counsel have been questioning my impartiality since the early days of this case, presumably because I sometimes rule against your clients. The whole approach is getting old. So Aaron, uh, what's your response to what I just read there? Yeah, I mean, it's just simply indicative of Donald Trump um, kind of uh, once again, pushing this idea that Judge Angoran is somehow politically motivated. Um, he had been doing this this entire trial. Him and his attorneys have repeatedly first suggesting that Trump's or sorry, that Judge Angoran's law clerk uh, was somehow politically motivated against Trump. Um, then they had a gag order issue. Then Trump um, in the courtroom repeatedly said that the case was politically motivated, railed against Letitia James, blamed Judge Angoran again. And this is just another example. And Judge Angoran is rightfully calling them out for this. Um, now, it's interesting. Alina Abba is Weisselberg's attorney in this case. And in the first letter Judge Angoran uh, or the first email Judge Angoran sent to Abba and the other attorneys, he said that under New York rules, uh, New York rules of professional conduct, an attorney is required to disclose when their client may have committed perjury on the witness stand. And that because Abba is essentially Weisselberg's attorney, if he lied on the witness stand, she should dis disclose it. Um, and she in her response letter said she doesn't have to disclose it or she doesn't want to disclose it. She doesn't know anything about it, essentially. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting um, situation they have going on there right now. Yeah. And everything plays into the narrative that Trump pushes so he can act out, have these outbursts, do things that would get other uh, defendants admonished and what he's doing is saying this is so politicized so they're going to treat me so poorly and again do things that would get other people treated way worse than he's being treated by the court by the judge and then finally he pushes a judge to doing something to punish him and then he can point to that as see i'm the victim they're treating me so poorly they're gagging me well they wouldn't have to if you weren't going after like you said the clerk of the judge or whoever it might be and all these outrageous statements on his social media platforms so this perjury from Weisselberg, how consequential is that for Trump? It's interesting. So um, the New York Attorney General's office actually has argued that it doesn't matter whether Judge Ngoron considers a possible perjury charge for Weisselberg because his testimony was already so misleading and so misrepresentative of the facts of the case that it was already a nullity. It was, all, it was already false. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really impact the ultimate decision. Um, and I think that generally tracks what's going to happen here. I mean, regardless of whether Weisselberg um, is charged with perjury or not, the New York Attorney General's office did a good job kind of laying out how the facts differ from Weisselberg's testimony. And remember, this case isn't just against Trump. It's also against Weisselberg, who is a co-defendant in the case or um, may have been in the past. Um, so this has big implications because Weisselberg is Trump was or was Trump's main financial guy. He was the CFO of the Trump org. Um, so it will ultimately play a big role in how much Trump owes to the state. Aaron, where can people find you? On all my social media platforms at Aaron Parnas.